Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today it's part two of the Gospel of John, chapter 15. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. The stain of your iniquity is cleaned by his blood, by this new wine. He wants to wash our baptismal garments with this grape, with his own blood. He wants to be crushed for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Happy are those who are called to the banquet of the Lamb to feast on his flesh, the blood, and to drink his blood, his wine. So let's talk a little bit about wine. In the U.S. in 2005, we, just United States, consumed 913 million gallons of wine. We like it. (laughs) I wish I had a few bottles and we could uncork them right now and, and all have a glass while we're listening. But wine production is big, big business. It always has been. It was back in Bible times. It was a big business in the time of Jesus during the days of antiquity. There are all sorts of vats and vineyards, and you'll go through the Holy Land, and you'll see these all over the place. Hundreds of wine presses still being found today. And the demand was high for wine at the time of Christ because the Roman legions were there. They were stationed in Israel because Rome was ruling, and Judah was Judea, a province of Rome, and each Roman soldier consumed a liter of wine per day, and a legion had 5,000 people, so they needed 5,000 liters every day, (laughs) just for the soldiers. And that kept the soldiers very happy, And, and, and not because they were drunk, because it's a very low alcohol content. It's only 4% wine, but they used it medicinally because the water was bad and had bad bacteria that would make them sick, and so they'd mix water with wine. And that would kill the bacteria and make it safe for the soldiers. And it made them a little bit happy, too. They could get a little buzz. Um, But to supply this demand, the wine was produced in a very short period, less than four weeks. They just didn't have enough time to let it ferment because they needed so much. So it's a sour wine, only 4% alcohol. So John tells us that there was a jar full of sour wine standing there, and they put a sponge on a hyssop and held it up to his mouth. And that was his last drink before his kingdom had come. Now, grapevines like sandy, loose soil. They need plenty of sunshine, and they need good air circulation. They like dew at night, and their roots can penetrate into deep crevasses, and they can grow in really rocky, rocky places. So it's great for the Holy Land. And terracing the soil helps get the vine at the right altitude, and it's just a really great way to grow grapes. They grow well this year way for centuries they have grown. You'll see very old vineyards when you go there. Vineyards always had a fence or hedgerow around them. It could be stones that are made of with mud in between or branches, but that was to keep predators out. Hedges and fences to keep out things like jackals and foxes. Yes, foxes really like grapes. It's not just Aesop's fable. They really do. And it was a problem in the Holy Land. We hear about it in the Song of Solomon when he says, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that ruined the vineyards. Our vineyards are in blossom. Catch the foxes. The foxes were a problem, and the jackals and the badgers and the boars and people, marauders, would steal grapes, as well as the birds. You know the birds love grapes, so they'd have to put netting over the vines. 
The soil is cultivated by hoeing or spading, and that's the most labor-intensive part. And I know we have some master gardeners here, and you know the hardest part of your garden is getting the soil ready and preparing it in the spring. It's labor-intensive. And so this is a really rocky soil, so it was extra hard to get it ready for first planting. And the Holy Land has really rocky ground, so there are large stones that have to be gathered and picked up out of the ways. You see all the stones on the ground in this vineyard, and that's after they've been cleared and planted. And those stones all have lime, they're limestone. And so they have lime in them. And so when it would rain, the lime from the stone soaks into the ground and that's a natural fertilizer. The grapes like lime. And so after a good rain, they'd have to uh, rake up or hoe or spade around the the trunk of the vine again and, and work the soil again to get the lime down in there. Choice vines are then planted, and they're planted with great care and beautiful straight rows. Martha Stewart would be so proud. And then a watchtower was put up. A watchtower, because this is priceless. This is big box. It's the largest export, and they got to watch over the vineyard. And the husband man was called. I love that husband man, because, in, <laughs> because God's the husband man, and we've been studying the marital imagery. So the husband man would oversee the vineyard from the watchtower, the workers were protected, taken care of. They'd watch for marauders. They'd watch for predators. And the vineyard is guarded. And God, remember, is the husbandman. He watches over and protects. And these were built out of large stones with mortar and a thatched roof. And the whole family of the husbandman would live there during the harvest or during the season. It's a great vantage point to see everything that's going on in a high place. And you'll recall that God had asked Adam to be the husbandman of the first garden and to shamar and guard and protect the garden. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Some translations will say the vine grower, the gardener, the vine dresser. But it's God who planted Jesus, the true vine on earth. God sent him down and planted him. First, he planted him as a tree of life in the middle of the garden. Now he's planting him as a vine, a new vine, a true vine. I love that crucifix with the vine wrapped around it. The husbandman removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Jesus is the vine, God's the husbandman, and any branch that bears no fruit is being removed. Now we've seen one branch already removed. His name was Judas. He's been removed. He went out into the black of night. He's bearing no fruit for the vine. Every branch that bears fruit, the husbandman God prunes to make it bear even more fruit. So some of the fruit-bearing branches that are left are going to get severely pruned. And that's Peter. And he's going to deny Christ not once, not twice, but three times. He's going to get a real pruning. And prunings aren't always pleasant. But they're always productive. So before the arrival of a new springtime, the husbandman of the vineyard will prune every superficial branch. He knows right where to trim. Uh, I mean, this, these guys are professionals. They, they know the first bud, the secondary bud, right where to cut, right where to trim, right where to, you know, they're not, it looks like they're just hacking it up, but they're not. They know exactly what they're doing. Every branch that's sickly, weak, or feeble gets cut so that the sap from the vine can flow into the healthy ones that will bear fruit. And the true vine is that trunk at the bottom. There's one vine that's like a trunk. And Jesus says, I'm the true vine. It's a woody trunk. It's the main vine. It's the true vine. And Jesus says, I'm it. And my father is the vine dresser, the husbandman. Now, the branch that is closest 
to the true vine, to the trunk, is the one that bears the most grapes. Think of that. Because in this four-chapter discourse, there's one apostle that's sitting closest to the trunk, closest to the true vine. And it's the one Jesus loves. He's reclining on the bosom of Christ, and it's John. And John lives the longest of all the apostles, and he produces a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of good fruit in his lifetime, like the book we just read, John chapter 15. John is right up against the trunk. All of the apostles, all of the apostles, other than Judas, produced a lot, a lot, a lot of good fruit for the kingdom of God. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So Judas's grapes are not good fruit. They're bad fruit. He's not producing, and so God will prune that vine. The husbandman will prune that vine But Jesus loved him till the very end, gave him every chance. It's his decision, but Judas gets severed from the vine. Satan entered into Judas, and Jesus said, do what you're going to do and do it quickly. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the husbandman, my father God, takes away. So each tree is known by its own fruit, for men don't gather figs from thorn bushes, and they don't pick grapes from a briar bush. So you're going to be known by the fruit you bear, the good man, out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So Judas had that evil of duplicity. He's two things. He's acting this way, but he's doing this. And there's a lot of people, a lot of people that live a double life, as Judas did. And it looks like they're bearing good fruit, but they're not. What kind of fruit are we bearing for the kingdom of God? What kind of fruit are you putting out? What kind of fruit am I bearing? Is it authentic? Is it good? Is it juicy? Grapes are very laborious to grow. They take a lot of work, and it takes a really good husbandman to know exactly what to do for his vineyard. And pruning, pruning is one of the most important things they can do to get a good production. They have to prune, 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 prune. Do you like being pruned? Hmm... Yeah, we need regular pruning from God, and he knows it. He's expert. He knows right where, right when, right how, right when, right now, right. He knows, and he's a master at pruning us back, and he removes our sinful areas. He wants to cut them out. He wants us to learn from them. He wants us to grow from them. He'll even allow things to happen, but all things work together for those who love him. So if we just wait it out and trust him and stay in him and abide in him, he'll bring us through it and we'll learn and we'll produce more fruit in the long run. But we don't see it right then. But we might see it in two years or four years or five years or 10 years. Oh, I remember when he pruned me back in 1963. (laughs) I was one. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. He prunes us because he loves us. He wants more from us. After discipline for a moment, it seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, but for those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Just trust him when he wants to prune you. And we say, I don't understand. I don't want to go through this. I don't want to be pruned. But stay with the cross, right? Stay, 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 stay. He knows what he's doing. Those who I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Keep a soft heart. Keep a soft vine. 
have some, some greens, bendable, vine, don't be brittle and hard and broken off. The Father prunes us back. It can be painful at the time, but it helps us bear more fruit for his eternal kingdom. And we need it. We need it. And it hurts. And I hate it. But he loves us. So he prunes us back because he wants more from us. Abide in me as I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'll remain in you. You remain in me. Abide. That's abiding theology. It means remain in, stay in my love. Stay in me. Trust me. Trust my word. At Mass, we have the per ipsum prayer. Per ipsum means through him. And the priest says through him and with him and in him. He doesn't say at him, around him, or above him. In him. Remain in him. Through him, with him, in him, abide in him. You've already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. His word that we just studied cleanses us. How? If we abide in it. You know, now you know what's in there. I'm sorry you started Bible study because now you're not ignorant anymore and you're held responsible for it. Some people say, I don't want to do Bible study. I don't want to know what's in there. That'll take all my fun away. Did it take all your fun away? No, because now your joy can be complete because you can abide in him. You know what to do. And if you do what he says, you are my friends if you keep my commands. No longer slaves, I call you friends. And your joy is going to be complete by his word. You're cleansed by his word if you abide in it and do it. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because guess what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. What? Nothing! Oh, yeah? Really? Nothing? Well, I can do a lot of things on my own. I really can. Just watch me. You want to see what I can do all by myself? No help from anybody? That's what King Solomon said. When he was young, he prayed for wisdom. The Lord said, I'll give you anything you want. He said, oh, Lord, just give me wisdom. Oh, the Lord liked that prayer. That was a good prayer, Solomon. But then what? Solomon started making money and 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 wives and money and money. And oh, Shiva, look at my storerooms. He became the king of self-sufficiency. He didn't need God anymore. He didn't need the vine. He can do it all by himself because he's King Solomon. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Without me, you can do nothing. So God doesn't want solo pilots. And God doesn't want lone rangers. And God doesn't want people who think they have no need for him because they are self-sufficient. We need God. Without him, we can do nothing. We can't take our next breath. Really? You want to see? No, we won't, we won't test God. Do not put the Lord to the test. He wants humble, foot-washing servants who stay attached to the vine, and the vine is Jesus Christ. Stay with the vine. Jesus is the vine, and he's the vine that gets us back to the Father. Stay with the vine. God has a watchtower in heaven. He's watching over his vineyard. He's seeing what fruit we bear. He says, just stay with the vine. Just stay with the vine. Stay on the vine. Stay attached to the vine. I'm the husband, man. I planted it. It's Jesus. It's going to get you back to me. Through him, with him, in him. You'll get back to the Father. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish. And it'll be done. Really? Whatever we wish? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. 
Here's the kicker. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. <laughs> because if his words abide in you, you're going to ask for the right things. You're not going to ask for sports car and diamonds and money. You're going to ask, Lord, help me bear fruit for your kingdom. Oh, Lord, how could I bring another one? How could I invite another person to seeking truth? How could I do this, Lord? How could I love better? How could I help this sick person? How could I bring this meal to someone? How could I increase your kingdom? That's what you'll be asking. Asking the Lord to bring an abundance of souls with you to heaven, bearing lots of fruit for his kingdom, eternal fruit, fruit that will last. My Father's glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. That's what he wants. That's what glorifies him. Following Christ and helping others follow Christ by your example. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. Stay in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He's given us a blueprint. Keep my commandments. You'll be in my love just as I kept everything the Father said I did. Everything in perfect obedience. I abided in his love for me. Do what God said. Hear and obey. It's one action all the way through the Old Testament. You hear God's word, you obey it, you do it, you live it. And you'll be in the vine. See how the vine comes out of his side and wraps around the cross and comes back into the chalice? Abide in me and I'll abide in you. Trust God's word and do it. Do it. Do it. Abide in me. I'll abide in you. And then what? And then what will happen, Lord? Then what will happen if we do that? Then you will be happy. He promises. He promises. He said, I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. He wants his joy in you, that your joy may be complete, full, life to the abundance of happiness. It's not just a bunch of rules to, to control you like a little robot. No, it's a blueprint for living that'll bring you joy, joy like you've never known. That's why we want everyone to know about it. So if we want our kids to know about it, it's not just a set of rules. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do that. You can do that. Don't do that. No, it's relationship. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friends. If you do what I command you, I don't call you servants or slaves any longer because the servant doesn't know what the master's doing. I call you friends because I have made known to you everything, everything, everything that I heard from the father. He did not keep one thing back from us. I'm going to tell him this and this. I'm not going to tell him that. I'm going to keep that from myself. I'm not going to tell him that one because that's really good. I don't want to tell him that. He told us everything, everything. Everything the Father told me, I told you. So your joy could be complete. So you'd know the blueprint. And guess what? The world's going to hate it. And the world's going to hate you. Well, then blessed are you. Holy are you. The world is not going to get it. When the advocate comes, whom I'm going to send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, it's the pure love between the Father and Son. It's the pure perfection of love. And it's going to come and live inside of us and abide inside of us. And his name's the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of all truth. He comes from the Father, and he's going to testify on my behalf. You're also going to testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. He's talking to 11 disciples who are left, 11 apostles. Judas is gone. He's talking to the 11. You've been with me from the beginning, you guys, and you're going to be asked to testify on my behalf. And do you know what testify means? Judas gets chopped off the vine. He's going to be replaced by Matthias. In Acts 1, it's the first thing they have to do. They draw lots and they choose one to fill this office because it's a governing office. There has to be 12, like the old 12 tribes of Israel. There has to be 12 apostles in this new vineyard, in this new covenant. 
And he says the criteria for that is that it has to be someone who has been with us from the beginning, from the very baptism of John until the day Jesus ascended when he was taken up. That one, that's the criteria. It had to be a witness to his resurrection. To be a witness or to testify. To be a witness in Greek is to be a martus, a martyr. So he's telling them right there, the world's going to hate you and they're probably going to kill you because of me. Blessed are you, holy are you. You're going to bear fruit for my kingdom, fruit that will last. 11 of the 12 were martyred. St. Paul was martyred and many others. And the blood of the martyrs seeded the church. It bore eternal fruit, powerful fruit. One was not martyred, only one. Guess who it was? John, the baby, the young one. The one that laid on the bosom of Christ close to the trunk. And Peter said, when Jesus came back on the Sea of Tiberias in the last chapter of John, Peter said, Jesus, Jesus, what about John? What about John? What about John? Is he going to die? Is he going to be a martyr too? Because Jesus had just told Peter how he's going to be led to a place he does not want to go. But what about John? And Jesus says, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come back, what's that to you, Peter? Don't worry about John. John's the only one that didn't have to be a martyr. We have Judah. Joseph, Jesus, they're all vines. Vine, vine, true vine. Here's what it says about Joseph in the blessing of Jacob right before he dies. Now put Jesus in here. This is about Joseph. The archers bitterly attacked him. They shot at him. They harassed him. But he remained firm. His arms were agile. Jesus, they bitterly attacked him. His own brothers, they harassed him. His bow remained firm. His arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. In John's gospel, Jesus calls himself, I am the good shepherd. We know he also is the stone of Israel, the stone rejected by the builders that had become the cornerstone. A stone not made of human hands is going to crush all other worldly kingdoms and usher in the kingdom of God. Genesis 49, to Joseph, from the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings from heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessing of the breast and the womb. Well, Jesus had blessings, the ultimate blessing. He lived at the right hand of the Father. He came down to bring us blessing, to usher in our blessing, the ultimate blessing from the Father and reverse the curse of sin and death. He went deep down into the earth. He harrowed Hades and freed the imprisoned spirits. He broke the curse. Jacob loved Rachel, Joseph's mother, like no other woman on the face of the earth. He had four wives. He always loved Rachel the most. God favored Mary, Jesus' mother, like no other. He blessed her virgin womb with fruit. And Jesus had the blessing of her breasts and the fruit of her womb. He was the fruit of her womb. And to Joseph, it says, the blessing of your father have surpassed the blessings of all my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and not only on Joseph, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Ah, Jesus had the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. He's a true Israelite. He was from Judah and he's the typology of Joseph. Like Joseph in the Old Testament, this Joseph, Jesus, is going to be the firstborn of a highly favored mother. He's going to be the father's favorite son. He got the birthright from Jacob. Joseph did. It was a double inheritance of the promised land for his family. Jesus, too, is going to get a birthright. It's a double inheritance of the promised land for his family. He's going to get two kingdoms, an earthly kingdom and a heavenly kingdom, two portions. He inherited a kingdom on earth. 
He shows them a glimpse at his transfiguration of the second kingdom. He's going up back to the Father, to the kingdom of heaven. He has a double portion of the Father's inheritance, two kingdoms. Joseph was betrayed and denied by his own brothers. Judah, his brother, sold him for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus will also be betrayed by Judah, the southern kingdom. They say he's not the Messiah. They're going to kill him. He's going to be sold for 30 pieces of silver by one of his own brethren, one of his very own, Judas. Joseph was stripped of his tunic. He was thrown down into a pit. Jesus will be stripped of his ephod and thrown down to in a pit in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. It's still there today. It is the number one place they know without a shadow of a doubt. This is the holding pit of Jesus on the night of his betrayal. He's stripped and thrown into a pit. There was a huge famine at the time of Joseph. Israel was surely going to die. The seed of the Messiah would never be seen again, but Joseph was their salvation because he was in Egypt. He was the viceroy of Egypt. And not only their salvation, but the salvation of the entire world. Joseph would feed the entire world bread. And the new Joseph, Jesus, would be the bread of life, life for the entire world, the salvation of the entire world, Judah and Israel and all the rest of us, all of Abraham's children. Joseph forgave his brothers. It is the most poignant story in the Old Testament. Jesus forgives his brothers. And he provides forgiveness for the entire world when he breaks the curse of sin and death. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jacob dies in chapter 50. The brothers are so scared because when they take Jacob back to the Holy Land, they're afraid that Joseph's going to turn on him. Now that Jacob's dead, Joseph might not really forgive us. He might kill us. He might hurt us. And they say, please, Joseph, forgive the crime of the slaves of God, of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers wept. And they fell down before him. And they said to Joseph, we are here as your slaves. And tonight, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends. The servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I heard from my father. Joseph said to his brothers, do not be afraid. I am in the place of God. Am I in the place of God? Joseph said, am I in the place of God? Jesus really is in the place of God. He is God. Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he's doing today. And John tonight says, Jesus says, I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I'm giving you these commands that you love one another. When the brothers left, Joseph said, love one another. Don't fight on the way home. He said, love one another. So Judah's a vine, Joseph's a vine, but Jesus Christ is the true vine. Let's always abide in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you that you are the true vine and that you were crushed for us and that you washed our garments clean. Our baptismal garments were washed clean in the blood of you. And you give us this wine, this blood of Jesus to cleanse us and to keep us abiding in you. And you love us that much that you, you, you did all this for us. Thank you for being the vine. And thank you for being the joy that gladdens our heart with this sober intoxication of the Holy Spirit, this inebriation of joy that the saints talked about. You are the true vine, and may we always labor in this vineyard and bear much eternal fruit for you, God, our husbandman. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was part two of the Gospel of John, chapter 15, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.